Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a double shot of benefits for rethinking back-to-office plans. If they've got 20% occupancy, I'd be surprised for uh, most federal office workers. And they might have leases that are expiring where they could immediately reduce their spend and move into a location that's frankly much higher quality. And what should CISA do to really help agencies? The advice to CISA is, please don't send people with any go. That's been really hard. I've had to address that in both EPA and at NASA. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Marine Corps' new information warfare doctrine is, quote, the first capstone service doctrine to describe the purpose and mechanics of the Marine Corps' seventh warfighting function. Marine Corps doctrinal publication eight information is part of the Corps' force design efforts, according to Deputy Commandant for Information, Lieutenant General Matthew Glavy. The four sections of the doctrine include the nature of information, theory of information, effective use of information, and institutionalizing information. Two new weather prediction supercomputers are online now at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The new computers operate three times faster than the ones they replace. The computers run at 12.1 petaflops. They each have 26 petabytes of storage. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Never trust always verifies the essence of zero trust. If you want to secure your organization, you need to verify more than just users. You also need to secure devices. Tanium can help you gain clarity and control across all endpoints to secure your perimeter. Visit tanium.com federal to learn more. The Labor Department is in its second month of allowing full occupancy at its headquarters, but it's one of many agencies that isn't requiring employees to come to the office every day and probably won't anytime soon. Dan Matthews is head of federal sales for WeWork. He's former commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Right before we turn the recorder on, You said that agencies are starting to see the consequences of their decisions regarding coming back to the office. What are the decisions that you've seen agencies make so far? And what are the consequences that you think they're starting to see? Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Francis. Great to be here. And uh, always glad to be on your show. I think some of the, the questions that they're starting to answer for the last 18 months, right, they've spent a lot of time understanding telework and what the future is going to look like. And agencies are starting to make decisions, reclassifying positions, things like that, about how much telework, how much remote work they're going to allow. And we're starting to see that now that a lot of those decisions have been made and people are starting to come back into the office to whatever those new levels are, they're seeing, okay, this has pretty significant implications for how we manage people, um, the amount of real estate we have, Uh, our mission delivery, uh, all sorts of issues along those lines. And I think the focus, it's almost like a light bulb has gone off uh, in some agencies that now they're saying, oh, wow, this is a real change. And we've got all of these, uh, you know, institutions and structures in place that are built for a different way of work. From a real estate perspective, how concrete do those plans and uh, policies need to be moving forward? And how much flexibility can an agency have, Dan? It's a great question. And frankly, I think it is the, the fundamental challenge that real, federal real estate professionals face right now. 
they don't have certainty and they're not going to have certainty because there's just so much in flux right now. And that's going to be the case for at least a couple more years as this starts to shake out. I mean, it's been almost, it's been two years already. Uh, and I think they were looking for certainty a year and a half ago and it didn't count. And the challenge really is the primary tools they have are not flexible. The solution to uncertainty is flexibility and Government construction is the least flexible solution, most capital intensive alternative out there. You know, you literally need to know what you're going to be doing 50, 60 years from now if you're going to put in 100% of the capital for a facility. Uh, no one can tell you that except for maybe courthouses and border stations. Um, and leases, for the most part, are also pretty long term solutions. They need additional uh, liquidity, so to speak in their solution set when it comes to real estate. They need something that can be turnkey, that can only be uh, you know, a few months or 12 months or 18 months, that they're not sinking in a ton of capital because if their needs change, they, haven't, they, they don't have a long-term financial commitment or the need to you know, amortize it over 10 years uh, to justify the decision. They need something that is a shorter-term solution so they can pivot as their needs change. Yeah, I'm citing from memory, so if I got it wrong, I apologize, but I think I remember reading at one point that the primary, the, the most common lease term in a federal government lease is 10 years, and that and and that is the reason why this strikes me as being so challenging, because I, just from a simplistic point of view, that means one-tenth of all government leases are coming up every year. So it would seem to me that on average over the last two years of the pandemic, 20% of the inventory has been up for renewal. I mean, am I, is that, are my yeah. kind of back of the napkin calculations no, no, off the, too far it, off? No, they're not. In fact, I think the sort of that bow wave of expiring leases has grown because the last two years we've seen a lot of extensions. So they just get, they kick the can down a year or two. And so the, the number of expiring leases, the amount of volume actually grows. And I've heard recently that over 50% of all GSA's leases are set to expire in the next four years or less. That's a large number of turnover, but that also creates an opportunity. And I, I guess I would say uh, flexibility, they don't have right now. They need a way to inject some degree of flexibility, but that doesn't mean that ownership is always you know, not going to be the right solution. Border stations, courthouses, right? They're not going anywhere. That makes a lot of sense. And there's a certain percentage of requirements where a long-term lease makes a lot of sense. You, But you got to have some flexibility on the margins too. Now, obviously you work for WeWork. So that's uh, the potential idea, the, the temporary workspace. But what builds that flexibility in? What's the full landscape of that flexibility look like? And, and both for an agency and for uh, an organization like PBS. Yeah, so you've got agencies that right now are sitting in a whole variety of real estate solutions that are obviously much, much larger than they're using and have been using for two years. I think the data that they've got is, is really quite clear. Um, and it varies, of course, between agencies, but in general, yeah, if they've got 20% occupancy, I'd be surprised for uh, most federal office workers. It's probably still around 15 or 10%. Um, and they might have leases that are expiring where they could immediately reduce their spend and move into a location that's frankly much higher quality. 
So has real benefits for their workforce, their employee uh, attraction and retention goals, and their competition for talent for their mission outcomes, and lower their their uh, spend considerably. You know, sort of a shift from quantity to quality. That's what you're seeing in the private sector. But if you look in most major markets right now, high quality buildings they are still commanding very high rent. It's more of the commodity type of office space that has extremely high vacancy rates and a real downward pressure on rates. And that's because there's this shift from quantity to quality going on right now because of the competition for talent. Governments in a similar situation, they also need to compete for talent. Um, they have the ability to do that if they use and avail themselves in some other, other tools. But you don't want to lock in for a long time at this point because, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the future is going to hold. There's political uncertainty. Um, and I think, you know, that it's pretty likely that the Congress may experience some change in, in leadership. And that's going to have an impact on budgets and also policy projections. So it's hard to predict long term right now. And I think that's why that uncertainty they just the government's got to find a way to inject some degree of flexibility moving from uh you know the quality versus quantity uh dialogue is fascinating to me dan and it strikes me one of the challenges the government has compared to the private sector is they have to go to their 535 member board of directors and say yeah we're moving from this amount of space to this amount smaller space but we want to move from a grade c to a grade b building or we want to move from b to an a and the price per square foot is X versus Y. Do you, does that enter the calculation? Like, is there a point where, where maybe Congress or, or somebody says, we're the federal government, we don't necessarily need to move into that kind of a building? Yeah, I think, you know, it can be an issue. And that's where I think you know, leadership and presenting a whole package, basically presenting, this is where the government real estate footprint is today. And here's the spend associated with it and the capital liabilities. And here's here's what it could look like in a five-year period if you transitioned to a, a structure that better reflected how people work and all the value propositions that go along with it. And, and probably the most significant for you know, cost-minded folks on Capitol Hill would be a smaller footprint that has a much smaller spend. But at the same time, You've got value propositions for employees or increased flexibility, the talent attraction, all those types of things, um, configurations of spaces that actually matches how they would be using the space, making them more productive. So there's a there's a strong argument to be made. Uh, even when I was on Capitol Hill, uh, we had sort of a smaller version of that shift from quantity to quality. And, and that was okay. You know, I was a Republican. We were fine with that. Total spend was going down. Um, and it actually helped their their mission outcome. So it's certainly possible to make that case. Dan Matthews, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about Back to the Office in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will observe the Independence Day holiday this coming Monday. You'll get a brand new episode tomorrow and Friday off on Monday, and then another new episode coming Tuesday, July 5th of the Daily Scoop podcast.
new guidance for secure cloud migrations out from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The Cloud Security Technical Reference Architecture is a product of CIS's collaboration with the U.S. Digital Service, the FedRAMP Office, and the Office of Management and Budget. Renee Wynn is former Chief Information Officer at NASA. Renee, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What do you see here in this uh, second version of this guidance from CISA? Welcome. Uh, thank you, Francis. It's great to be with you here again today. Um, I'm excited to see that the guidance has come out. You know, one of the tricky parts about working actually in a policy shop is policy usually follows actions that have been going on for a long time. And so some of the forward leaning agencies probably have already done a lot of migration, already really adopted the cloud as part of their strategy. This will help them kind of review what they've done and ensure that they've got the security in the right place. For those that haven't started the journey, hopefully this will be the right thing to get them going. What do you as an agency CIO take when something like this comes out? Do you regard it as a tool to use in the work that you're already doing? Do you regard it as maybe a North Star to start something that you haven't undertaken? I'm, I understand it depends on where an individual agency is, but I just wonder how influential something like this can be for somebody uh, that's leading a CIO shop. So I think it, it, it's, it depends. It's where you are on your cloud, cloud migration strategy. So at NASA, and you know, for folks to know that the uh, Perseverance rover on Mars that landed in 2021, um, great data coming back, little selfies here and there. Ingenuity, the first helicopter on another planet. Uh, all great. Well, the back end of that is provided by a cloud service provider. So NASA's already adopted it. And so the way I would have looked at it is gone through that and identified maybe areas that might be blind spots in the prolific use of cloud at, at NASA, right? And so if we've got some, if we've got some blind, blind spots, the cloud team, there's a team there that really helps lead the whole migration effort. They're also the data center team. So there's a lot of great talent available and have them take a look at it. And again, can you do a, probably a similar assessment? Where are our gaps in this? Where can we move forward on it? Um, and then, you know, you just keep running. Uh, the senior cybersecurity architect at CISA, Sean Connolly, talked to my colleague, Dave Nichapier. And he said, we want to look at more than just guidance. How can we help agencies throughout their modernization efforts writ large? There's two elements of there that I think are uh, elements of that that I think are important. The first one is he was asking, he was posing that kind of setting it up as a rhetorical question, Renee, from an agency CIO position. How can CISA do that? What is the right role and what are the right resources that you would want to draw on CISA for as an agency CIO? That's an interesting question. So NASA is a large agency. I worked at EPA as well, another large agency. So let me answer from the large agency and then maybe take a stab at a smaller agency. At NASA, help from external, and this sounds egotistical, can be really hard because you need to understand how the cloud is being used for the mission. And if you're, so I used, said, mentioned perseverance, that's millions of miles away. That's not something any just cloud architect can deal with. 
So it depends on where you want to use the skills. So a, a human resources application, a financial application, there may be some synergies there to get the assistance with it. But on the mission side, do the people that CISA is offering really understand that mission? Now, if they have folks available to help that have some military time, then there may be some opportunities there to understand and work within the mission. But it's very hard to come from the outside and deliver an excellent product without some of the context available with it. Now, smaller teams, smaller agency, maybe they're junior members of teams because you need more people to help you do this, but you still need that insider knowledge to go forward with it. And so the advice to CISA is, please don't send people with an ego. That's been really hard. I've had to address that at both EPA and at NASA. People need to sit down at the table to learn. Um, the federal government understands its mission. You understand the cloud technology. Let's bring that together and make great things happen. And then the second thing is, is be prepared um, to see who's the right lead for your effort, it may be a civil servant, it may be somebody from your contractor staff, um, or it could be somebody that comes over from CISA that would lead that project. And the idea is to be able to collaborate and be them of the mindset that this is all about the mission. So really, I started once again with people. And once you put together a great team, you, you know, you can just keep running. You always do that, Renee. It always comes back to people with you, my friend. Um, listen, how much do how much does an organization that's working with another organization need to understand the mission delivery of the other organization? Okay, in the example we're talking about, how much does CISA need to understand a space project in order to be able to help you with it? But my question isn't just directed to that. When you're the CIO, how much do you have to understand the financial management application that your agency CFO needs your help to deliver? How much does the acquisition person need to understand what you need from that person and so on? And, but I think it also applies to this example that you just described. Yes. Yeah, so let's start with the acquisition process. And, and I applaud NASA for taking this step. There is now a separate IT acquisition I think it's a division, but we'll call it team since I don't remember. And they get to know the, the IT needs of NASA, not just the CIO, because chips are all through our all the flying assets in NASA. There's all sorts of computer software, hardware, sensors, uh, and all of that. So let's just sort of set the stage. It's highly technical, but that's true of many missions. So it's not individual so your acquisition team, good news is they do understand the purchasing of IT. So they become a great helper to the CIO in coming up with the most cost-effective ways to get the products that you need. Well, you have to know what you need, which is not a marketing brochure. It's really understanding the compute. In the case of a cloud service provider, you need to understand the compute you need to have. And so, again, it goes back to the agency leads being able to define what's necessary so acquisition can help. And then in this instance, if you're reaching out to CISA, then you also need to define what it is, the talent you're looking for. Let's use a basketball analogy. I've got my team, I've got my forwards, my centers, um, and I have my uh, you know front ball handlers. Well, if I have three centers already, and I say, I need a basketball player and they send me another center. That's not going to help me. 
I, I already have three. And of course, maybe if all three get injured, then sending me a center is good. So you have to be able to ask for your teammate from that. And CISA then would have to have the skills to do it or be able to say, you know, that's just not what we have available or because everybody needs that particular talent, you got to take number 10 in the line and we'll get to you when we get to you. And then you're kind of back to square one thinking about, well, I, I need to keep moving. So how do I keep moving forward on that one? So you have to understand your requirements to know what your ask is. I'll ask you next time you use that analogy to do it with hockey, because I just don't understand anything about basketball, <laughs> but I think I'm an anomaly in this audience. So we'll let it go. <laughs> the second element of what Sean said there, that rhetorical question, how can we help agencies throughout their modernization efforts writ large? is significant to me. And I don't know if he was saying it on purpose. Maybe I'm inferring way too much into it, but it sounds to me like CISA believes that it's ready to take on a role as a strategic partner with IT organizations across the government and not just be a policy shop. And I think that's, I think that's probably something that organizations across government will welcome, given the emphasis that this administration, and especially Congress, looking at oversight on agencies is placing on cybersecurity. Renee, am I on the right track, do you think? You you are on the right track. And let's kind of go through that. CISA has been a partner, at least in my experience. We ran into a couple of real challenging issues. And uh, the CISO at NASA, who is still there, you know, would call CISA or NSA or DHS Whenever we ran into something that was unusual, sometimes just to report, other times was, okay, tell me what you think, what, you know, where do we need to go? And, and that's when you would call for help. The other side of this is also the CISO Council, Chief Information Security Officer Council run by Office of Management and Budget, and the CIO Council, Chief Information Officer uh, Councils, they are strong collaborative environments. So CISA has a model to use as they embark on this because it we would just call them whenever we needed help, never thought not to ask for help. Um, and that's true across the government. And so there are models that they could use to guide them if they think they need one. They probably know what collaboration looks like, but it is a really good thing because you do run into some unique issues across the government where you're going like, let's call a friend and have the, you know, phone a friend and, and then sit down and get some thoughts on how to proceed and, and then see where it takes you, right? Maybe it's a one and done conversation. Maybe it's, yeah, we need to send a team. We did have a team come over, not from CISA, but from some three-letter agencies to really help us on a significant issue. You are a home run hitter, man. You got a basketball reference and a who wants to be a millionaire reference on the same show. That's really amazing. Renee Wynn, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Francis. And you make it a great one. You can read more about CISA's new cloud guidance in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.